say in your book, The Mavericks, colon, English football when flair, war, flares, reprinted by Bloomsbury just last year, priced at nine ninety nine. But you say people at your school would be Tottenham, Arsenal or Watford, which is particularly pertinent to me because I've been going to Watford for the last 10 years. But my father, whom you know, when he chose to take me to, Spur- to Spurs, well, he said to me subsequently... Yeah, I didn't want to take you to the Watford, not with that dreadful football. So I went to see Spurs instead. Do you appreciate the irony of that? Yes, of course I do. And it's interesting how you start out, isn't it? You know, for me, it was a it was a family duty, and as, and I didn't know anything about Spurs really when I heard of Chelsea in 1966. It was as I relate in the book. You know, I'm sat down at not nine nine years of age after the World Cup. I'm at a cousin's place, and I hear the story about how my grandfather's brother had died of a heart attack celebrating a Chelsea goal against Arsenal, Boxing Day 1953 or something like that. It was, I had no choice. But where I was lucky, I suppose, is that Chelsea in 1966 were a fantastic team to watch. So, um, you know, luck. But Watford was the nearest ground to me because I lived in Stanmore. Very nice. And you could always get in. And there was hardly any crowd trouble, unlike Stamford Bridge or White Hart Lane. Um, so that was always, but I never wanted Watford to win. I always wanted the other team to win. I couldn't stand <laughs> the whole concept of you have to support your local team. I didn't do it for me at all. Well, I wrote an entire book where I concluded that you've got to support your local team. And it's very handy that I can see the Vic uh, from my flat, which is uh, near Watford Junction Station. But of course, I am half Stanmore because my dad was born in Stanmore in 1958 uh, and went to the John Lyons School between 1971 and 76, where he was football captain. He was the year behind me. Yeah. And I'm still, I mean, I don't actually know, but I wonder whether your dad and I went to the same primary school as well, Aylwood. Yes, that's I correct. kind of remember him yep, from yep, there. Yep, yep. Aylwood, Aylwood Primary. Yep. He was, so I was head boy of Aylwood, and he was the year behind me, and I knew him when he when came to John Lyons, but because we were in different years, and he didn't play cricket, and I was a cricketer, um, we very rarely spoke to each other, I would think, but I was very aware of your dad. Really good footballer. I mean, a good defender. Really good defender. So I hear. I and um, amazingly, when I go to Watford, Richard Franks is 10 seats away, and Richard Franks was the other centre-half of that oh, John really? Lyon first eleven. I remember Richard very well. We were near neighbours. Uh, with yeah. the same synagogue. Um, yeah, God, I remember Richard. He was a good player. Damn good player. So before we get... Tied up with Stanmore. I just wanted to relate that this is, it's very rare that I talk to someone who knows my dad, who is over in Manhattan now uh, with three kids under three. And I think this will go out around his birthday. Uh, so happy birthday to dad. And I hope you listen to this. Do you have any message? Happy birthday, Alan. Yes, please send him my best wish. And I'm hoping to come to uh, Manhattan for the World Series week at the end of October. So I, I will go out for a meal or a coffee and reminisce. Indeed. He, I don't think, to my knowledge, went to uh, watch football when he was young because he had to help with the family business, which was, do you remember? No. It was, no, I, no. It was Bricks, <laughs> it, Bricks Menswear, which became Suits You. Oh, yes, 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 yes. No, I remember. Wasn't it one in Oxford Street? Yep. It's now a Starbucks. I don't know whether to steer it back to the Mavericks. Uh, any of the Magnificent Seven went to Suits You. Stan Bowles, Tony Curry, Charlie George, Alan Hudson, Rodney Marsh, Peter Osgood and Frank Worthington. Or as you call them, 
Stan, Tony, Charlie, Allen, Rodney, Peter and Frank. At what stage during the writing process did you make the decision to use their first names to make them stand out even against George Best and Bobby Charlton? Well, it, to be honest with you, it was something that I decided to do when I wrote my first book, Solo, which was a study of a cricket season seen through the eyes and experiences of three guys from different generations, yeah, young guy, middle-aged, older guy. And in order to separate them from all the other people that I was talking about in the book and, you know, really highlight them as the centrepiece of the book, I would just use their first names. So whenever I've written a biography, and I've done a few, um, so whether it's Sonny Liston or David Gower, um, I've always called them by their first names. Because, you know, that's how I'm talking to them. I'm not talking to them about their surname when I'm sitting in a room with them or whatever, or, or not in the case of Sonny Liston, of course. Um, it's it's that sense of telling the reader that, you know, this is who the centrepiece of this story is. That's the way to separate them. That's why so I've always done that. It was such an easy thing to do. And you wrote another book, uh, 500 to 1. It's about Headingley in 81. An hour ago, I heard the news that Lord Beefy of Botham has got a new job. I don't know if you've seen this today. No, I haven't. No. He is one of ten trade ambassadors, and he has been deputed to Australia. That's a very fun... Um... <laughs> oh, my God. He's the man who, who walked out of a, a, a dinner in Australia, I think it was 91, with Graham Gooch, because they were harping on about republicanism and a few jokes about the Queen. And he got up with Graham Gooch and walked out of the dinner. So that's an interesting one. And Ian Chappell, of course, hates his guts. Mm -hmm. So uh, that'll be an interesting to see how he gets on with that one. It's a book in itself. Uh, 40 years since that Headingley test, I remember, um, was I playing football during the Peterson innings? I remember coming in from the changing room and Peterson had more or less won the game for England in 2005. And that's the closest that English cricket in the Red Bull game has got to that. We've just, we're talking on the 23rd of August, the day after the 100 has finished. Uh, this is a stupid question. Uh, will you be watching next year as well? Yes, yeah, absolutely. I'm, I've watched everything that's been on live on TV, on BBC, I should say, and mainly because I want to see what it's like and what are they offering that's different. But also, you know, it's not aimed at people like me. I'm a convert. I don't need to be told that cricket's a great game. But for all the kids out there, and I speak as a father of three children in their 20s, none of whom really like sport, despite having a sports writer for father. So I'm very aware of the uphill struggle cricket faces, particularly when it comes to Red Bull cricket. It's a reality. You can't get beyond it. So therefore, something like the 100, fantastic. If kids are going, if women are going, all the better. If it expands and gives us an audience in 50 years' time, so long after I'm gone, if the Ashes are still being played for, oh, my ghost will be happy, if nothing else. Yeah, well, the Ashes will never, ever end because it's, it's sporting banter. And the uh, I don't know where the Ashes are this year. Are they due to be here or there? Now, Australia this winter, but I don't think it'll happen, I think, because of COVID. I think they'll call it off. I agree. And it's a real shame because it's the big sporting battle. I always care about the Ashes. I don't particularly care about domestic cricket, although Duncan Hamilton tried to change my mind with a brilliant book a few years ago. Um, and I've got Michael Henderson's yes. book on the go as well. Uh, we'll talk about the Mavericks in the second half. This half is all about non-Mavericks, so your life as a, a sports journalist. But uh, we'll, we'll dally on cricket because David Gower 
Uh, it seems to me that he was a maverick of the early 80s. Yes, uh, yes, he made, well, in many ways he was, but in a sense he, he was very, very different. It, it was almost the opposite of the footballing mavericks. Um, and in a way, of Ga- uh, both of them as well. I mean, both of them doesn't come from a poor background, but he's very much a rebel. And the footballing mavericks are also rebels in their way. Gal wasn't a rebel in that sense, because, you know, Gower had a really good upbringing in terms of going to a school where he could practice cricket all he wanted. He put an enormous amount into practicing cricket when he was young. So he was one of those guys, you know, Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours, whatever. He put those hours in. He made the game look easy. He was also... You know, he was perceived as having a public school background, etc. It wasn't strictly true, but he was of that, you know, he was perceived in that way. He actually, um, you know, he, he de-elocutionized his voice because he wanted to fit in in the Leicestershire dressing room. So in, in a way, he's the invert. So the book I wrote about him was a bit about class war, but seen from the opposite perspective, defending someone like David Gower, who in any way, in many ways, kind of epitomised a lot of stuff I'd always been a bit anti, you know, kind of privilege aspect of it all. Um, he was shat upon from on high by the new kind of roundheads, Go- Gooch and Stewart, and denied... As a result, I was denied, as millions of others were, the joy of seeing David Gower not just, you know, go on for a few more years, but actually be able to say goodbye to people. That bloke never had a chance to say, this is my farewell test innings. Thanks, guys, for supporting me. You know, take the bows. Never had that chance. There's still that time. Was, that's the great tragedy for me. Steve War, when he was on his final season for Australia, he had every test match he played in was some great homage he orchestrated it. Gower was the opposite. No one had a chance to say goodbye to Gower. And that's the great tragedy of David Gower, sadly. Yes. Well, he's a wonderful broadcaster and a writer. And cricket, as we know, is the sport which football writing looks up to. You do get your Football Library membership card, uh, Rob Steen. And it's got Brian Glanville on it, obviously. Um, and uh, we'll talk Glanville a bit later. But just to whiz through... Another quick book. Uh, One of my favourite writers, Simon Barnes, says that sport and thought are not incompatible. Uh, That's the argument of floodgates and touchlines, which is an enormous book of about 500 pages. This seems to be your magnum opus. Uh, It's about spectator sport all the way back to the era of the gladiators and chariot racing to uh, now, to today. Um, So the hundred, I guess you were watching it as a sports writer and seeing the sociology of the hundred. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, for my mind, you know, sports history is fascinating about what it tells us about how society has developed and also ways in which, particularly in, in, you know, in terms of race, sport has been ahead of the game. It's provided a platform for people who are underprivileged or prejudiced against to emerge from their subjugation, for want of a better word, to achieve. So whether it's Muhammad Ali or Jackie Robinson, Arthur Ashe, you know, the people who, who have shown the way it through sport, you know, or Marta, Martina Navratilova in terms of gender and sexuality. Um, you know, big piece with Billie Jean King in the Times at the weekend. Brilliant I noticed. Piece. I'm going to read yeah. um, today. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, these are the people who through sport inspire people outside sport to think, well, maybe I can achieve despite this, despite that. And that's the greatness of sport. But to imagine sport's all about who wins, who loses, is to kind of miss the texture 
and the depth of sport and why we love it as much. Yes, we love the drama. Yes, we love the joy. But also, we love the stories. We love the rags to riches stuff. You know, whether it's somebody going from the bottom of the table to the top, or it's somebody coming from, you know, Maradona's background or Mike Tyson's background. So even if you hate both of those for, you know, some decent reasons, you have to admire what they conquered. Yeah. The social obstacles against them achieving what they wanted to achieve, making their talent count. And and sport is so rich. And the idea that sport and politics should not mix is, is I, I, I can't even think of a word or a phrase to describe it other than, you know, fanciful. I was going <laughs> to lead you know, with politics, but yeah. Never been They've never been separated and they never will be because sport's about people. You know, and that's all you need to know. Yeah, small p politics. I'm fascinated by what's going on in the Philippines. I've got a vested interest, but Manny Pacquiao, who is the the exported star, it looks like he might well run for president. Vladimir, was it Vladimir Klitschko? One of the Klitschkos was mayor of Kiev. And of course... Yeah, you've had George Weir. George Weir's Liberia, George Weir in yes. Liberia. Well, you know, um, there's been, there's been people being close to it in America. Uh, there was a basketball star who got close to being running for president about 25 years ago, 30 years ago. You know, the fact is sport, sports people are put on pedestals for better, for better and for worse. Yeah. And people looked at someone like Pacquiao in a country which is struggling. You know, all sorts of names come up. <laughs> Pacquiao had, had obviously created such a loyalty and a love and a boxing can still do that which is astonishing to me but you know that's life yeah well i as well as partis um sorry as well as competition there's participation i think in the next five years it would be crazy if there was not some kind of alliance with a footballer and anthony joshua and uh, joe root or ben stokes just saying to people get off your sofas just Pass. Get transfer energy from potential to kinetic. Do stuff, and maybe we'll be better prepared for the next pandemic. Do you do work on sport and fitness and health? No, never done that. Um, I'm really not interested in it, to be honest with you, in terms of a um, what, what, what I'm interested in writing about. And I ought to add at this juncture, you're, you're probably not aware of this. I mean, I don't do much sports writing now. I mean, I spent 40, 40 years being a sports writer, basically, which I, I loved every minute, felt very grateful to do it. But I kind of moved on from then. So, you know, apart from writing about the 100 <laughs> and the occasional cricketing obituary, mm-hmm. um, I tend, I'm focusing on kind of other writing these days. But in terms of, to come back to your direct question, I'm a little bit sceptical for two reasons. Firstly, think about Olympics 2012. Yeah. You know, there were government trying to sell how this was important to spend 11 billion pounds of taxpayers' money, which I was not in, in any way in favour of, because it would have an impact on an obese population. People are going to get out there and, inspired by gold medal winning, they were going to go out there and John be fit. Well, it didn't happen. And, you know, if that didn't work, I can't see anyone else doing it right now that's going to make any difference. There are people who want to play for whatever reasons they want to play, which may not be related to fitness. I will go out here in pool right now and I will see three or four people running in their middle ages 
right? Not just young people, which is great. And I think it's really important. Would that be happening now if they hadn't had this whole lockdown? They've got something to do with themselves and they're eating so much because there's nothing else to do. So a lot more people need to lose weight. So I'm sure that's going on. But I don't know that sport is, you know, sport is, I think what most people get out of sport is the sheer experience of watching it, the fun of enjoying it, the playing it's kind of different matter, particularly when, you know, where do you play cricket? You know, there's a lot of clubs, but a lot of clubs going out of business. Yes, because they can't get support for cricket. And it's also an expensive sport to play, you know? And that's just why cricket has a problem that football doesn't. You know, anyone could play football, you know, jumpers with goalposts, <laughs> all that stuff. Cricket, very expensive game to play if you want to take it seriously. And that's, you know, until the game. So they've made a step, if you like, by, you know, saying kids and women can come in cheaper for the hundred, you know, generate interest that way. They've got to do something with equipment as well. And, you know, all those sports ground that, 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 you know, the toys and labor sold off, you know, schools playing cricket. When I was at school, we had a place to play cricket. There weren't too many other schools. And that was back in the 70s. I've been there. We used to to play at the wreck. You know what it's about. Yeah. Down at Sudbury. Oh, right. Down at Sudbury. Our sports day was at the old Lyonians cricket ground. I know, I used to play there, yes. yes. I know what you mean. Look, the thing is, these facilities are there, but they're still there mainly for the elite, you know, people who can afford to go to the right kind of school and all that kind of business. You know as well as I do, that's the reality of it all. Football cuts through that because it, you know, it just cuts across all of that because it's cheap, you know, and it's short. Cricket game lasts minimum, what, three and a half hours, yep. three hours. And it's a lot of time with the curriculum is the way it is. Um, and I feel sorry, but if you want to take sport, you go join a club. But the memberships, you know, are not a good. Cricket's not good right now. I think the 100 will help, however. I would so hope so. be positive. Thank you very I much. So. It's all about, it's as much about participation, this, as it is about bums on seats, because they know there's a generation growing up who just don't play the game. And if they can tap into women, which I think is a crucial aspect of this, all well and good. Yes, because Heather Knight has done amazing things. I'm trying to think of the other great batter. Who's the one who, who had to fall out of the game because she wasn't well? Sarah, Sarah. Sarah Taylor. So it is Sarah Taylor, yes. Charlotte yeah, Edwards, Sarah Taylor. I, I actually covered the Women's World Cup in 1993. And it's one of my favourite, the most cherished sporting experiences. Because we were the team, as the Ashes were going on at that time, the men. The men were getting worried. Yeah, we were hopeless because of Steve Wall. winning the World Cup. Beating Australia. We're absolutely hopeless. Australia were really good. And the women won it and they won it at Lords and I travelled around the country with them and it was just joyous. Oh wow, I must um, read something about that. You know, that's uh, 28 years ago, 28 years ago mate. Yeah. And there haven't there has been a lot of progress since then, but it's still unfortunately, you know, such a minority sport. You know, women's taking this women to, this long to get to football where it's you know a big part of women's experience in in present day England. Cricket is still very much about do you live in Sussex? which is a particularly great, you know, fertile county where I've been living the last 10, 15 years. Yes, there's lots of support for cricket in Sussex, but I'm not sure how many other counties outside the home counties this is applied to. Mm, I, you know? I'll watch that because um, this will go out um, around the week that the Women's Soccer League, which has been injected with some money from Barclays, Sky are going to really push it. I watched Watford the other day and... I think I've got Karen Carney. I think she's better on telly than she is on radio. 
because because she she's a footballer first and she's not a broadcaster she's a footballer first and foremost and what i tend to dislike and i keep saying this it's too much ex pro bait for the listener you know you remember when you used to have mike kingham and alan green now you've got john murray and chris sutton and karen carney and dion dublin we don't need three pros and one commentator so five live what do you listen okay. to where do you get your football fix I don't have a football fix. I don't need a football fix. I keep I keep a broad, very broad idea of you know league tables. Should we say? I do look at the results. I never watch match of the day, partly because of for these very reasons that you've just cited. When I've occasionally turned, I mean, I'm seriously, I didn't watch it the last two seasons. I find too much time on the talking. Not enough time on the action. I mean, you tune into match of the day to see what happened. So often you'll get ten minutes of a game. And 15 minutes of talking. Mm. And I kind of think the priorities are wrong. That's number one. Number two, the whole thing about specialist commentators. Go back to, you know, um, beginning of Sky, for example. Charles Colville was actually a, you know, a bit of a commentator. But he was just about the only professional journalist, quote unquote, mm. amongst the whole pack of them. And that, that has been maintained. Now, cricket, it works, to my mind, because they've got the very, very best of players, you know, from all over the world as commentators. You know, so whether it's Michael Holding, you know, or, or you know, Nasser Hussein, Michael had a quality plus achievement. They've done, you know, they're intelligent people. They give you both. I think there's very little of that from what I've heard and seen. Yeah. You know, and I have watched enough to have built up an opinion. Um, I did find the European Championships, you know, my exception is World Cups, Euros. I always watch those, take an enormous interest because... I don't really care who much who wins. I just want to see good football. I want to. I don't want the whole club, you know, my club forever and a day thing. I, you know, the Chelsea thing happened to me in '85, and I've never supported a football club since. But I do love watching top quality football. You know, particularly tournament football. I thought the knockouts that Monday when we had the two, what three all draws going into extra time. Yes. You know, that was my best days football I've ever seen in my life. Nothing to compare it. And forget '66 and '68 and all that. This was joyous football. Football played as it should be. And you know, that's my great exception. And I think the coverage of the games was very good. I thought the commentary teams tended to be pretty good. They didn't necessarily go for a big name alongside the main commentator. They went to someone who could actually add to what the commentator said was professional enough. So I think the commentary was all right. It's more the after talk and the before talk that drives me bonkers. No, it, I can't I can't be dealing with it. I've got I mean Afghanistan is on fire. There are bigger things than oh my god, aren't Arsenal terrible? Of course they are. They've got a terrible owner. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I know it's the exaggeration of everything. The hyperbole. You know, in fact, we live in a world where the word overhype is actually accepted. Even though the word hyperbole, which is hype, means exaggeration. Yep. So over-exaggeration, what the hell does that mean? And yet, that is what the hundred, in a sense, was about. But I didn't object to it in the hundred. Because because of I the aims and goals of it. Move. It wasn't to make money. Oh, it was, there was a social aspect to the hundred, yeah. Exactly. It was selling the game to people who know nothing about cricket, basically. And that's fine. Anyone who loves cricket is fine by me. If that's the way you want to do it, as long as we keep red ball cricket, I don't care what they have to do. Amen I seriously that. don't. Whereas most of, my, most of my contemporaries are very snooty, shall we say. 
You know, there's, there's all these people out there who love county cricket who wish the 100 never existed because they know, deep down as I do, that this is really the first move towards fewer professional teams, which, you know, is we've saved that off for a very long time, but it is inevitable. And I think the 100 is just part of that. Well, I feel sorry for Durham, aren't they? Only about 30 years old. And, well, no, not as a county. As a first-class county, yes, but they've been existed as a, you know, a base for cricket pro- talent for, for over a century. Right. Um, you know, loads of northeast players come via the minor county team. But I don't understand what you're saying. But the fact is, the reality is, if I go to a county cricket game, and I go, I, I love county cricket, absolutely love it, how many people are there? But more importantly, how many people under the age of 60 or 70 are there? How are you going to replace that audience? So forget about the audience for county cricket. It's all about producing players. So it doesn't matter who goes and watches. They're there to do a job to produce players for the England team. I'm fine with that. But 18 teams, 18 clubs to produce a team of 11 in three formats. Now, India doesn't even have that. And India's a little bit bigger than this. Yes. Um, and I, I just think that I don't want to, don't get me wrong, mate, I want 18 first times, I want it to continue, but I wouldn't sacrifice the future for that. And, and that's uh, the thing that people find very hard to accept. And if you want to see some good cricket in Middlesex uh, or Hertfordshire, if you go down to Moor Park, to the finest school in Britain, Merchant Taylors, and their well-mowed fields, you'll be able to see Middlesex um, playing cricket at Merchant Taylors when Lords is busy. But I just want to switch to Chelsea now. A lesson in handling disappointment, a club promising so much, delivering so little, learning, as you did, Rob Steen, of football's hopeful romanticism. And yet, uh, from page 106 of the old edition of The Mavericks, English Football When Flair Wore Flares, which came out uh, in 1994 on Mainstream, I just wanted to read this paragraph back to you. Chelsea had just conceded a third goal in the second leg of the Milk Cup semi-final against Sunderland, rendering defeat inevitable, when a cluster of far-from-gruntled supporters began ripping up the metal-framed seats and shot-putting themselves onto the field, endangering the players. Oblivious to the widespread evacuation towards the far touchline, Clive Walker heard into the Chelsea box once more, only to be put off his stroke by the close attentions of a mounted policeman. Name drop ahead... Standing high in the press gantry next to Suggs, I noticed that he too had gone rigid with anger, incapable of intelligible speech. That's it for me, I informed him once the last horse had trotted off. Yes, there were horses on the pitch. Never again. That was 1985. And you never went back. No, it's not that I never went back. I never cared, really. I never, I never considered myself a supporter as such. Uh, that that whole love just went that night. So I've been back to Stanford Bridge maybe three or four times since that night. Um, once a European champion, uh, European Cup game, I can remember with my best mate who happened to become a Chelsea supporter. That I, I have been back four or five times since then, but I've never cared about Chelsea. And the, and the only kind of regret, if you like, I have is that all the wonderful years under Mourinho and whatever, all the success, I've never, never got any pleasure out of it. I wonder whether I might have done had Chelsea played a different brand of football I'm sufficient. I've watched enough to know how they play and how Mourinho manages teams to know that Chelsea seldom played a particular. You know, once Zola, you know, Zola was was an absolute magical player, and him. There was something about Chelsea when he was in the team, but 
once he went and, and Mourinho's kind of ethos took over, you know, just make sure you don't lose kind of thing. Um, it was so anti the way I look at football. Um, what the joy I get out of football um, that you know there was nothing to tempt me back success wasn't enough you know I, I, I just what Chelsea what they found I felt as a fellow fan ashamed absolutely ashamed to be part to be part of that I mean he didn't start that night it'd been going on for a decade you know going on the train again leaving games early 10 minutes early because he didn't want me to see any of that the a-holes threatening people after a game, you know, if they happen to be wearing the wrong scarf, you know. My best mate was punched outside a place in Wembley. He used to live round the corner from Wembley Stadium. Went to the 1983 Milk Cup final, West Ham, Liverpool. My best mate was wearing his Liverpool scarf, just got punched in the face outside the door. Not even at the game. I mean, you know, half a mile away. Someone saw him in his scarf, just punched him in the face. You know, and that was what we were living through. I think you're, you, if, you know, you're, you're a fair bit younger, you know, and I don't know what your, your father did, um, you know, in terms of going what his experiences were. But I grew up at a time when hooliganism was at its height. And if it bothered you, as it bothered me, then, you know, these things happen. You, you, you kind of, you go the long, long way around and you say, oh, can I, how can I justify this morally? And Chelsea were the intercity firm, we're not talking about small minorities here. And that's that's the laugh. Everyone says hooligans are a small minority. Well, not when it came to Chelsea or Man United or Liverpool or West Ham. I think it's better as a Sorry. TV product. So Please don't apologise, because this is an era that has come back because we're so <laughs> fragmented. Society is awry. How dare people be annoyed at vaccines that actually save your life because of a virus? I was thinking about this earlier. What know, have we I mean, become? And partly it's because of the media, which we'll get onto in the second half, which is coming up shortly. Uh, but we are talking to Rob Steen. Uh, the Mavericks has been reprinted. Uh, and we'll talk about that in the second. I've got to finish on an up, haven't I? I never like finishing on a, a downside. Good for you. Um, Good so so let's you. Uh, so take me back to 1970 on this two-foot colour TV. Both the, the, the final and the replay and, and all the build-up to it. You know, remember in those days, all you got was the big match, particularly if you're a London fan. You knew you could see a London club every Saturday, Sunday, on the big match. Chelsea were on all the time that, that season. They played some wonderful football. You know, when they beat Watford, I was the only person who lived in Stamore. I think you We didn't Chelsea want Watford to win, of course. And, you know, the, the, so the day of the final, you know, to be where I was and, and to, to almost miss Chelsea's second equaliser because, you know, the, the people I was with, because they had a colour television, whereas my family didn't, uh, they wanted to leave. They wanted to go somewhere else for tea. And I said, no, no, hang on, hang on a second. The final whistle hasn't gone. And Hutchinson scores that diving header. And I think for pure exhilaration, even more maybe than Webb's winner in the replay, that moment when I thought, I could have missed that. You know, and that lack of faith they had. <laughs> and I had the faith, my optimist. That was kind of, actually sums up my lifelong, you know, weakness for being ridiculously optimistic. Ah, well, we need and more. And that was probably the, you know, the quintessence of it all. Wow. Quintessence of optimism. The Rob Steen story coming shortly. 